All right. You can go in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are in a sermon series called Here, which is, of course, the first word of the Shema, this sort of confession of faith that you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that to this very day uh, is confessed uh, uh, by, by Jewish people. And um, this, this confession, again, often known as the Shema, that's that first word in Hebrew, here, is a, is a summary of the most important thing that God was, was getting across, was communicating to Israel, was telling His people after they had been brought up out of Egypt. In the preceding chapter, God tells them, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, therefore, and what follows is what we know as the Ten Commandments. And then we get to chapter 6, where God tells them, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And I'm kind of giving away the story to you. Last week we talked about knowing this God, right? That's hero Israel. He, information, very important information was dispensed to make sure they know it. What? That God is one. And in a context of a lot of idolatry, we talked about that last Sunday, what that idolatry looked like, and kind of tried to get you into the headspace or worldview of an ancient Israelite to understand why that would have been a temptation. But to know that in opposition to that, no, God is not all over the place, and as the pagans say, and uh, in, in many different uh, forms, but rather God is one. And so, from there, uh, knowing God, now we get to loving God, and then next Sunday we'll be seeing God. So God calls His people to love Him. We'll go back to that text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We discover in the Scriptures a God who calls us to love Him. God begins with who He is, the one God of heaven and earth, the Creator Almighty. And then He says, most fundamentally, what's the very next thing? Now that we know who this God is, what do we do about that knowledge? Love Him. Now that's kind of weird, because I don't know if you can tell, but the word here there is a command, and then shall, love, is also a command. Now, can love be commanded? What an interesting thing. I mean, I'll give away, again, I'll give away the ending. Yes, apparently, right? But that, that kind of vexes us, at least if we walk in with the assumption, if you like, that love is primarily an emotion. This is where Christianity stands opposed to most of the world today, where we say love is not primarily an emotion, though certainly there are lots of emotions that can attend to it. Most of our wider culture defines love like this, and this is, this is my own definition, my own estimation, but I think it's fair. Most of our wider culture defines love as the glad embrace of an involuntary affection. Okay? The glad embrace of an involuntary affection. Okay? So, so you have this involuntary infection, uh, affection, not infection, well, there are a lot of involuntary infections going around, involuntary affection, excuse me, 
uh, that so so you have this this thing you love, and it's just it kind of overflows out of you. You, you feel, sort of feel powerless to stop it. Indeed, powerlessness is the way a lot of times that we talk about love, right? Because you 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 fall in love, which makes it sound like a pit, right? That you were walking through a, a field, as it were, one night and didn't see the trap that was laid, and you you, you fell in. Right? Or, or what's that? Madly in love. You're madly in love. Well, now you are not, a, not in full control of your mental capacities, right? And so, so why is it then that when you love, say, you're, you, say you love your favorite food or, or, or drink or, or restaurant or song or book or movie, nobody needs to tell you to love it. You just do, right? It thrills you. Why wouldn't you? And if you... I mean, if you think enough about it, that favorite book, that favorite movie, that favorite food, that favorite drink, so on and so forth, you could probably kind of build an explanation as to why, yeah, but, but yourself doesn't really need an explanation. Somebody else might, but you don't, and, and this kind of love, look, really thrilling and oftentimes really satisfying because it's very low effort, it's pretty much just the emotional overflow, and it's very high reward, it feels good. This is, the biblical concept of love, I think, is hard for us to get our hands around and, and believe. Because, I mean, look, if I said, and I, I will, I'll just say this right now to you, right? love is not primarily an emotion, love is a choice. And a lot of you upon hearing that are going to go, amen, pastor, yes, we know that. Love is not primarily an emotion, love is a choice. And a lot of us like how that sounds, and we know in our brains that it's right. But we often change our tune when we try to get down to the business of like actually loving people. That God commands us to love, I'm just going to start here, that God has the audacity, if I can put it that way, to command you to love, to call you to love, means that love can in some form or fashion be a work, something you do. Okay? We tend to think that uh, at least we're tempted to think, let me put it that way, we are tempted to think that if I have to choose to love, like as an exercise of my will, well, that, look, that might be a noble effort, but on some level it's inauthentic, right? I think, I think we are kind of tempted to think that. And uh, let me put it this, let me, my first response to that is, look, fair enough, because nobody wants to hear that you're having to work really hard to love them, okay? I mean, if you, like, uh, if, you're, if you're communicating with your spouse this week and you just mentioned, you know, I'd, it's really difficult to love you. I could really use some help in this department. Do you think you can help me out? I don't think that's going to go so well for you. It'd be a great way to start a fight. The fact is that working to love, though, excuse me, the fact is that, that, that working, the, the, the work to love, the work that you do to love, can result... Uh, Man, I've, I've tied up my sentence. Let me try again. Love can just come from the overflow. And certainly that's nice when that happens uh, insofar as we're loving things that are good and that God has called good. But also the overflow can come out of the work. Okay? So I've got a story on this and I, I always like to own when stories are not my stories. I, don't, you know, I think it's weird. Sometimes it gets found out that preachers like tell other people's stories as if they're theirs. That's weird. I don't do that, um, and if you think I do that, you need to call me on it, but um, Tim Keller's got a great story, and I'm going to tell it, I'm telling you that Tim Keller told it, because now that I've told you that, you won't think that I'm talking about one of you, 
Because <laughs> he tells a story about uh, a couple in his congregation when they had just planted uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York, that there was this, this married couple in their congregation that, you know, had, that had some trouble. And as it turns out, both of them were pretty hard to love as things go. Uh, just required a lot of patience and a lot of energy. And, and so sometimes, uh, you know, Pastor Keller would get together with them and, try, and sometimes him and his wife Kathy would get together and try to, to work with them. And they were just, it was very difficult to love them. And so he committed himself to start doing two things. Number one, praying, Lord, give me a love for these, for these two people. I don't, like, I don't have it. It's not what it ought to be. And the second thing, um, so, so, so help me to love them and, and help it to be authentic. As, as you've called me to love them, so, so help it to be an authentic love, right? And he prayed that for a few months. And as, as time went on, uh, uh, some months later, he had a day off. And so uh, his, his wife was asking him, what shall we do on the day off? And he said, why don't we get together with that couple? <laughs> and she said, what? Why? Like, it's your day off. Why do you want to get together with them? And he said, I started laughing because I realized God had done it, and I hadn't even noticed it. But like, I, I wanted to be with them. I wanted to spend time with them. God had done something in my heart kind of when I wasn't looking. Because he was working to love, in time, love came from the overflow, you see. Now, that doesn't mean that love isn't costly. Right? And perhaps it is, when we think about it, maybe it is that all love is, is costly. Jesus famously ties love of God, with his, which is what we're called to, right? In this text, it's what we're called to, love the Lord your God. Jesus ties that together with another commandment, namely loving your neighbor as yourself. If we go to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 22, yeah. So Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, he goes on. Oh, is that? Oh, sorry, that's everything. I apologize. The verse numbers aren't there, so I get them, I, I get them messed up. Uh, so that's, yeah, 37 to 39. So Jesus ties together love of God, love of neighbor, right? And that's not very revolutionary. Jesus really is just restating what's always been the case. If you don't believe me, let's go to Deuteronomy 10. So we're in Deuteronomy 6. You move forward just a few chapters. And what do you find? You find the Lord God repeating himself in a book where he's repeating himself. Apparently, this is very important. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, all your soul, you hear the same kind of language again, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good, right? That's part of his love, giving us commands that are actually for our good. Go on. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So, here's God telling them the reason for His love. Did you catch it? I have set my heart. Right? Yet the Lord has set His heart in love on your fathers. He's chosen them and He's chosen you. In other words, if they were to ask God Almighty, Lord, why do you love us? His answer would be, because I love you. Right? Because I have set my love on you. God made a choice to love 
Israel. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, right? Transformation. And be no longer stubborn. Go on. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, takes no bribe, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing, and then moves to a command. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners, strangers, foreigners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve Him. Hold fast to Him. By His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. What is happening in that text? And as a matter of fact, Burley, can you jump back to verse 14? Oh, is that what's... Uh, yeah, thank you. So, and, so look what we have here. Actually, I think, I, Burley, I messed you up because I think what's about to follow this is verse 14 by its lonesome. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay, so we start here. God tells them, Behold your God and His power. This is how God starts, with adoration of who He is. It's how we started our worship service. Adoration of who God is, right? Uh, Come all that has life and breath, with praises before Him. Let the amen sound from His people again. We started with adoration. So does our Lord here. But there's also a kind of, a, a kind of uh, uh, bidding us to, to know this God, to fear Him in His power. The next verse, Behold His love for you. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers. Okay? So, so we have the, the law, how great and awesome is this God, followed by gospel, behold His love for you. The next, we have a commandment, law, circumcise your hearts therefore, be no longer stubborn. For your God is awesome, verse 17. For this God is, this is the God you're dealing with. God of gods, Lord of lords, great, mighty, awesome God, who is, no, who's, who is not partial, takes no bribe. You cannot talk your way into favoritism with this God. What else do we learn about him? He defends the fatherless, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And by the way, that's what you were in Egypt, verse 19. So you... Go ahead and do for others what I did for you and welcome in the stranger. Fear the Lord, he says, verse 20. You get this kind of back and forth, this, this law gospel thing that's happening. Uh, fear the Lord, here's the command, and know who I am and what I've done for you. Right? Law and gospel. So fear the Lord. He is the one you praise. And He is the one who's made you triumph, by the way. He's your God who has done these great and terrifying things. Remember Egypt, right? And all the plagues that you witnessed. And my power that your eyes have seen. And then the next verse is, He's made you triumph. He's the one that's given you victory over Pharaoh. Notice how God says, You are to love me. And then describes Himself as the one who loves the fatherless. The widow. The foreigner. The poor. Verse 18. And then what does he do? He calls them, verse 19, to do the same thing. Love the sojourner therefore, for that's who you were. In other words, love the Lord your God. You guys knew I was going somewhere with this. And love your neighbor as yourself. There it is, tied together. But isn't this amazing? This means it's not simply 
when we talk about this, this is not simply just bring God into your personal life as a kind of religious object. I mean, what, is, what does the book of James say, right? If you believe in God, good for you, so do the demons. And at least they have the good sense to tremble in awe and fear. It's not enough to just have God as an object of mental furniture. The love of God must affect your life and, by the way, the, your role in the society in which you live. I mean, you do not see that. That this is the God who cares, essentially, summarize, for the vulnerable, for the defenseless. And so you, therefore, as my people, go and imitate me in that same kind of love. And so this love of God, love that we have for God, must apparently affect your life and your role and your work where you live. It must drive you out of your great discomfort for your lack of care and your lack of concern for the vulnerable, for the orphan, for the stranger, for the foreigner, for the homeless guy who, look, might very well be trying to scam you out of some money, for the lonely person who needs to hear from a friend. So God says, love me because I am the one who rescued you. And so you ought to be the ones carrying my rescuing love to others with joy. And this must necessarily impact then what sort of people we are in our society. You see, societies change when Christians move in. I don't know if we, I don't know if we believe that, but I'm just a sort of personal mission of Brian Rhodes in 2022 is to convince you of that. Societies have to change when the gospel moves in. When Christians move into the neighborhood and plant churches and start loving their neighbors, maybe that's the missing piece, they have to change. They have to, otherwise Jesus is a liar. So why doesn't the gospel transform our city? On one level, the answer is it probably does in in many imperceivable ways. But perhaps it is that We don't see a lot of transformation out there because transformation has to happen in here first. As we worship God, as we hear from Him in His Word and at His table, as we receive Him, and then we bring it home, that's key. It has to be in our homes if it's going to overflow to our neighbors' homes. It has to be in our households. It has to be in our families. It has to be in our marriages. That's what, that's what the next verse talks about, by the way, in Deuteronomy 6, right? You shall talk about these things and put them on your doorposts and put them on your, uh, 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 on your wrists, as it were, and as frontlets between your eyes and talk about them with your kids. And all that. That's next Sunday. But the reality is that the only hope for the city of Alexandria is that the people of God love the Lord Jesus with all their heart and soul and might. Have you ever wondered why? A lot of psalms beg God to deal justly with violent men. I admit, I didn't really think too much about it until I lived in a city where there are some reports of violent men. I wonder if we ought to be singing some of those psalms. Save me, O Lord, from evil men, from violent men protect my way. For evil schemes are in their hearts and they stir up war every day. O Sovereign Lord, my Savior strong, in battle You protect my head. Refuse the wicked their desire to shame them, make their plots misfire. That's Psalm 140. And so, 
to go back to our text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is God's call to us. And, and look, usually, uh, as, as in my experience, sermons on this text kind of break that down into separate aspects of love. Sort of, here's what it means to love God with all your heart. Here's what it means to love God with all your soul. Here's what it means to love God with all your might. And, and fair enough, there's, a, there's time to preach that. But I, I think you can see the point that this is love God with all you've got. Love God with everything you have and with everything you are. And that is what our worship, dear saints, is meant to express and even, even represent and, and picture our love of God. And this is always the way it is, right? That love and praise are inseparable. If you love something, you praise it, right? Go back to the, the movie, the food, the drink, the, whatever it was. And furthermore, as we think back to last week, because we know that loves can turn into idolatry, and those are the the things that control you. So when you are consumed with anxiety or fear or pride or lust or greed, what is happening? In a sense, worship is happening. This is why we're called to to know our own hearts. So search your hearts and ask the Lord, what is the worship that's happening underneath my idolatry? There's a a little investigation for you to do. What is the worship that's happening underneath my anger, my fear, my bitterness? What is the thing that's really owning me, the thing I'm most afraid of or most loyal to, the thing I'm hoping in most or trusting in most? And then once you discover it, name it. Be really clear with yourself about what it is. Bring it to God in prayer. And then I got something really crazy for you. Confess it to your pastor or an elder or some, at the very least, some Christian friend around you that you trust. Why? Because then it's real. Really, because then it's real. And then use your imagination to envision the day when that struggle is but a memory. I mean, have you ever thought, why did God give you an imagination? Maybe so you can like hope and look forward to what He's going to do. And so, the, the, the question then that is the, the bedrock of our, it has to be the bedrock of the sermon this morning, is do we love God? Do you love God? I believe in Him. Great. <laughs> do you love Him? Do you love Him? I mean, when we think about this, this connection then between love of God and love of neighbor as well, it, as best I can tell, it, it means that our life together in the body really starts to matter quite a lot. Our, our, our connection to the body. And this, look, this is one thing that, that COVID has kind of destabilized and taken from us. To some extent, I think we're getting it back. But the, uh, taken what? Taken what, Pastor? The, the, the expectation of, of regular gathered worship and fellowship. It, it is remarkable, right, how, how many times this, the phrase love, uh, the phrase one another shows up in the New Testament. Love one another, care for one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, sing to one another. And never does it occur to the apostles to say, and if all this one anothering gets really hard or annoying or obnoxious, just find another fellowship elsewhere that's easier for you to love. 
So our gathering then for worship and fellowship starts to really matter, doesn't it? Because it starts to really test whether or not the cross of Jesus has actually broken down the dividing walls that we say it has. The ones that we like to put up around us so that we're only surrounded by people who are eh, pretty easy for us to love. Some of you are like, that's why I come to this church, Pastor Brian, because you're hard to love. Fine, I'll take it. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're hearing these things and the principle, like, what's, what's rising up in your spirit is, I don't love God as I ought. Right? So what, what, if I, what if I don't? Like, what, what if right now in all this, I hear, love the Lord your God, and it's just, oh, it's law, 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 and I don't know what to do about it. First, good, that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? Re- you're recognizing this is a deficiency in me that ought not be. That's the Holy Spirit. You can thank God for that. He's not done with you. Keep a few things in mind. First of all, what I've tried to show you from the text here, especially that bit in Deuteronomy 10, is that love for God is always a response to what God has done. Okay? So if, if, and that's, that itself is a blessing. It is like God's inviting you to... Sorry, this just, this just popped in my head. It's like God inviting you to love bacon by first having you smell bacon for like a good 30 minutes, right? Nobody needs to sell you on your love for bacon at that point. Right? And so it is that God begins with, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. This is my love for you. Therefore, love the Lord your God. So love is always a response to who God is and what He's done, which He's told us beforehand. That's the beauty of Deuteronomy 5. Right? People think Deuteronomy 5. Uh, okay, Ten Commandments. Yes, but oh, just before the Ten Commandments start, you know what it says? Like Right before God gets to the first commandment, He starts with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm I'm the one who loves you. Therefore, Ten Commandments. So that's the first thing. Love is always a response to what God has done. So take heart in that. Love, next, love rejoices in what God has said and done. Doesn't just study it, rejoices in it. This is really important. Because there are all kinds of books out today and all kinds of teachers about today who will, and, and the premise of their teaching or the premise of their book is basically, let's investigate this thing that the Bible says that we don't like. And let's figure out if it really means what it sounds like and what virtually all of Christianity has taught about it for 2,000 years, but we really don't like it, so I bet we can find a way around it if we think hard enough. Fundamentally, this sort of enterprise flows out of a love for self. I'm not saying it's wrong. To investigate what Scripture says. Certainly not. But where a lot of modern interpretation projects go wrong is that they're based on this premise of we don't like this. And let's be honest, it's kind of embarrassing. You're not going to bring it up at parties. So maybe there's a way to find a way around it. And if there's not a way out, okay, well, geez, I guess we have to tolerate it. But by the way, most books (laughs) find a way out or they don't get published. Here's my point. That's not how Christians approach Scripture. Christians approach Scripture saying, okay, this is a really hard text. And if I'm honest, my flesh doesn't like what it says. Let's investigate it. Let's get an honest sense of, it, of what it means. And if it means something that we don't like, then we will change so that we can celebrate it and rejoice in it. 
and preach it to ourselves and realize why it's good and tell others about it and so on. This is how we ought to approach the Bible because we are people who love the God who gave it to us with all our heart, soul, might, the whole deal. Something I alluded to last week that I want to say again. This is also connected to the sermon from Psalm 115. Right? Those who make the idols become like the idols. And this is the reality that, that what you think about it this way, what you behold is what you become. Okay? What you behold is what you become. So whatever you think is most obviously good, true, beautiful, that's what you're going to model your life after. So that which captures your, your loves and your loyalties is what you're going to model your life after. Whatever you believe constitutes the good life or what, or what you believe you deserve, that will be what you expect of God and that will be the condition you place upon God as to whether or not you love Him. And God, the giver of all good things, calls us to love Him more than the good things with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our might. We do this by what? Well, you, you delight in and become what you behold, so we must behold God as He is. This is next week's sermon, to some extent, next Sunday's sermon, knowing God, loving God, seeing God, beholding God as He is. So that's, that's what God has given us to love Him. So, so come back next Sunday for that. How do we love God? By beholding His beauty. That's why we gather for worship. How do we fight sin? Same thing. By beholding His beauty. How do we fight temptation? By beholding the beauty of God. Oh, you know, temptation is just really great. I, I, I mean, great in the sense of too much for me. I, just, I keep losing this battle of temptation and sin. Uh, you know, there's, there's just besetting sins I can never be free of. It's never going to get any better. You know, I guess, I guess God just isn't giving me strength, right? say, well, that sounds awful. Do you pray about it? No, not really. Do you read an internalized scripture about it? No. Have you ever fasted? No. Do you show up for worship alongside other believers? Sometimes. Do you regularly confess sin to an elder or to anybody who will listen? No. Do you come to the Lord's table frequently to receive all that Jesus promises to give you there? Not really. No. But you're not listening to me, Pastor. Why won't God help me in this battle against temptation and sin? Yeah, that's a mystery. The point is God's called you to love Him. In so doing, it would, I think, be wrong to say God's asking you to do something hard. In one sense, He's asking you to do something that is really ridiculously easy. And in another sense, absolutely impossible. Easy because of who He is. Your Creator, your Sustainer, your Savior, your Rescuer, your Healer. He is God, your Father. He is Jesus Christ, your Brother. He is the Holy Spirit, your Advocate and Comforter. Easy because of what He's done. I don't know if you saw this morning when you came in the quotation on the front of our bulletin. The Psalms repeatedly call God a refuge. Because we so constantly need it. Habitually turning to God for refuge is the only real support we have in life. In Psalm 2, David took refuge by remembering that God will put all things right eventually. And when he says, I love you, Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. In Psalm 18, he, sees, he uses an unusual Hebrew word 
that conveys deep emotion and passion. Cultivate such love by considering how God delivered you through the drama of the cross, and this will make you strong. He loved you first. He called you out of Egypt first. He rescued you from slavery first. He shed His blood first. Love this God. That's like commanding you to enjoy this perfectly prepared meal of your very favorite dish by a world-class chef. Okay, I'll try. It's easy. But it's also impossible. Because all your flesh rages against this God. World of flesh and the devil tempting you to love yourself and privilege yourself and put yourself first and think only of yourself. And so... It is that the love of God requires total transformation of everything we are, and that's why it covers everything we are, heart and soul and might, all of it. And so in, in terms of what do we do with this, you know, applying a sermon, so to speak, about, about loving God, it's, it is the same application that I give to Friends whose relationship is in conflict, husbands and wives whose relationship is in conflict, and that is sometimes love is very, very easy and effortless. And sometimes it's going to take a lot of exertion of your will. And sometimes it's going to require a great deal, that exertion, of your heart and your soul and your might. And so that's part of it. So don't be surprised when it feels impossible like that and you have to flee to God for grace and strength. But at the same time, are we, are we hearing, O Israel, about the Lord our God to help us in, this, in obedience to this command to love Him? In other words, let me put it this way. Would your heart be different if you woke up every morning I mean, just every morning, your feet hit the floor, you quote Psalm 18.1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Right? Even if you don't feel it, right? Because you maybe don't feel much when you wake up first thing in the morning. Right? But you, you wake up, feet hit the floor, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Right? Do that for four weeks. Would that make a difference? Would it make a difference to your heart? And would it go from exertion of will to the overflow? I dare you to find out. I dare you. Come and let us love and worship the Lord our God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we need your help in this. We need your help to love you. But you've commanded and called us to love you, so therefore we know it is possible. And even more than possible, you gladly Deliver that which you desire and command. And so we ask that you would strengthen and steady our feeble hearts, Lord, and give it to us to love you, not just to believe in you, but that our confession and our worship would be the overflow of our love. Sometimes this will be easy. Sometimes it will be impossible. So we ask for your help. In so doing, we are asking for your will to be done. Because you've commanded us, we know that this is your will. So, Lord, let your will be done. Grant it to us to love you with all of our heart and soul and might. Let the overflow of that love 
Indeed, of all your servants in every place, be nothing less than the saving of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.